I'd like to talk to you a little bit about fear, which I think is probably everyone's favorite topic. And I've never, I've never considered myself to be a great parent. And I think part of the reason is sometimes when my kids are afraid, I think it's hilarious. And, uh, and I know that sounds awful, but it's, it's so funny to me. Like, you know, when you were a kid, you probably had something crazy that you were afraid of that didn't make any sense. And, and it's really hard to predict what kids are going to be afraid of. And sometimes it's kind of funny. Like, well, for example, um, a few years ago when we were still living in Texas, my youngest daughter, Rosalind, she was, she was real little, and she had done something wrong. I can't remember what she had done, but she had some infraction of the rules, and she was discussing it with my wife, Amber, and they were kind of reconciling the situation, and I was away at the church, and Rosie, in her, in her tears, said, don't, don't tell Daddy about this. Don't, don't tell him when he gets home. And Amber was like, why? What, what, are you, what are you afraid of? And Rosie thought about it for a minute and said, skeletons. Um, which is, I mean, that's, that's understandable for a, thing to, for a three-year-old to be afraid of, but in that context, it was pretty funny. And, and it's, just, it's really hard. They're, they're, kids are selective in their fear. And like my older daughter, Lydia, you know, we watch a lot of Disney movies in my house, and we're not sorry about that. And one of the things that Disney movies can be scary. And, and sometimes I kind of keep my eye on her during these movies because I don't want her to be afraid. And, but she's not when she should be. You know what I mean? Like we watch The Princess and the Frog and there's like these shadow monsters, you know, whatever. And we watch the Sleepy Hollow cartoon and there's a headless horseman. It's like it's no big deal. But when she was four or five, I took her to a, a movie and, and this guy showed up on the screen. And, and I had to carry her screaming from the theater. She was, I was, she was screaming, I was fine, but she, I had to carry her out because she had never seen anything quite as horrific as Wreck-It Ralph. My cousin Jacob was afraid of his hair. Um, not just hair in general, his own hair. He couldn't look in the mirror, you couldn't cut his hair, you couldn't comb it, so he looked like, he'd, he always looked like he'd been electrocuted in his sleep or that he had some like uh, evil lab somewhere under the house. <laughs> Bath time was a crisis. Um, but, you know, you grow out of those things. You get over it. Uh, m- my daughter, Rozzy, she's not afraid of skeletons anymore. She's certainly not afraid of my opinion of her behavior. Um, my daughter, Lydia, loves Wreck-It Ralph. She's got a poster from one of the movies in her bedroom. My cousin, Jacob, you know, he grew up. He became a pastor, and he's, he's mostly normal. He's as normal as my family gets. And, but you, you kind of you move out of that. You grow up out of it. But I think... In the midst of that, I don't think that your fear goes away. I think, I think what happens is your fear just becomes more sophisticated. You know what I mean? It, become, it, it changes shape. It changes scope. It, it changes itself to fit what your current circumstances in life are. You're not afraid of your hair anymore, if you ever were. You're instead, you're afraid of the future. You're, infer, you're afraid about your finances. You're afraid about your kids. You're afraid about your spouse. You're afraid about your parents. You're afraid about the way people see you. You become afraid that no one really knows you, or you're afraid that people might find out who you really are, or you're afraid you may not really know who you are at all. You, you become afraid about your health. You become afraid about your job, your career. You become afraid about the state of the country and politics. We, we are a nation that's afraid. High school students and college students are suffering anxiety and depression at epidemic levels. 
And it doesn't just get better when they get a diploma or a degree and they snap out of it. It just continues to get worse. We're afraid. And when we get afraid, we cling to things. You know what I mean? We cling to something that we can be certain of. Like, I'm afraid of heights. And none of you have been with me when I've been afraid of heights, and which is a good thing because it's not pretty. I think the closest it's been is when I, not long after I moved here, I drove the bus full of senior adults to go to the Michigan State Capitol building. Now, I didn't know anything about the Michigan State Capitol building, and, and so I went and went with the tour through the, through the Capitol, and it's tall, okay? It's got this big rotunda in the middle with these balconies that wrap around it that you have to walk on to get around in the Capitol building. The railings are short. Someone should do something about it. And, and for me, I was scared. I wanted to do the tour because I liked that kind of stuff, but I was scared. And for me, I had to make contact with the outer wall of the rotunda. I had to do that. Heaven help anyone who got between me and that wall. Okay, I actually had to pull back away from the rest of the tour because if I had to drop somebody to get to that wall, I didn't want it to be someone that I knew. Especially if we had to drive all the way back home and it's just... It would have been bad. So it's better to knock down a stranger. And so, so, I mean, I needed it. I needed that wall. And when we're scared, we cling to things. We cling to things that we understand. We cling to things that we're comfortable with, we're familiar with. We cling to things that make sense to us. We retreat back into that. And that can be different things for different people. It could be relationship, addictive behavior, food. It could be anything. Things that we latch onto to try and make it better <coughs> when we're struggling. For me, it was a wall in a rotunda, which didn't save me, by the way. Like, that wall wasn't the only thing between me and certain doom. There was the only two choices. There were more choices than just touch the wall or plunge to my death because everybody else was fine doing neither one of those things. We all got out alive. But what happens is we cling to things that can't really save us. And there's a story from Peter's life that, <coughs> that illustrates that. Um, I'll make a short interlude here and get my bottle of water that I forgot. There's a story from Peter's life that, that illustrates that fact. And we find that scripture in the chapter, in 14th chapter of Matthew, beginning in verse 22. And it says, Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Now, we, we can't start there. I mean, the word immediately is not a good place to start a story. There's a reason behind that word immediately. And so the reason for that word immediately starts nine verses before. What happens is Jesus, nine verses before that, Jesus finds out that John the Baptist has been executed. And Jesus is heartbroken by this. And the first instinct that Jesus has is to go and be with God to get away from everybody and all the distractions and all the things and flee to God's side to be with him. But he can't do that because there's too many people. There's a crowd of people that have come to see him and he, he can't help himself. He loves them. He has compassion on them. And he heals their sick and he teaches them. And when they're hungry, he takes five loaves and two fish and he feeds thousands of them. But as soon as that's done, he's got to get back to where he, what, what he was trying to do before. And he sends the disciples away. Before anything else can happen, he sends the disciples away, dismisses the crowd, and goes to be 
with God. It says, after he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Let me give you a little geography lesson for today. <clears throat> the, uh, the lowest body of water on the planet is the Dead Sea. Second place is the Sea of Galilee, where the disciples were. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake on the planet. It's 700 feet below sea level. Directly to the east of it are the Golan Heights, which reach a maximum height of about 3,000 feet. So from 3,000 feet all the way to negative 700 feet, it's a pretty big contrast. And because of that, there's a huge contrast in the weather patterns that collide every now and then over the Sea of Galilee and create sudden violent storms and high winds that make the, the waves reach about 10 feet high on the Sea of Galilee. So that's what's happening to the disciples. They're not having a good night. Jesus is on the mountainside praying. They're rowing for their lives across the Sea of Galilee. They're stuck in the middle of this lake. But shortly before dawn, it says, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. It's so natural for us to think of Jesus walking on the water. That's one of the things everyone knows about Jesus is that he walked on the water. But the disciples hadn't read the Bible yet, and so they were terrified. They didn't know what was going on. <laughs> They'd already spent the whole night rowing for their lives against the storm, and next thing they see, someone walking across the waves to them, and they're terrified. But Jesus doesn't leave them there. He says, this Bible says, immediately, again, immediately he said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And Peter, you know, who else but Peter, seizes on this moment. And Peter says, if it is you, Lord, tell me to come out to you on the water. Come on then, Jesus said. And so Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. It's just, it's just an astounding leap for Peter to make. To go from being afraid of the storm in the boat to jumping out of the boat to go be with And I've always kind of wondered what it must have felt like, like what it felt like under his feet. And did the waves give a little bit, or was it firm? I don't know. <laughs> but it's hard to get inside Peter's head in this moment. Because our, our first inclination is to make fun of Peter, always. Because Peter tends to mess things up a lot. He tends to make mistakes. He's, he, he does things without thinking. He says things without thinking. He's impulsive. He's brash. He's always, he's always putting himself forward. And you never have to wonder too much what Peter is thinking about because sooner or later it comes out of his mouth. And so our tendency is to take whatever Peter is doing and think, automatically think it's the wrong thing. Like, I remember when I was younger, I used to think, well, Peter just wanted to walk on the water because Jesus was doing it and it looked cool. If he gets to do it, why can't I do it? And so he could tell the disciples, who walked on the water? Jesus and me, that's it. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's what's happening here. And, 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 and again, I don't know exactly what was going through his mind, but here's what I think. I think that when Jesus shows up in a situation, regardless of what that situation is, if Jesus shows up in a situation, the rules change. Everything, go, everything you think you know goes out the window. Jesus takes situations and turns them upside down. When Jesus, before Jesus 
shows up on the scene, the safest place in this storm. Well, the safest place in the storm is in a fishing cottage that's cozy with a roaring fire and a cup of hot chocolate. That's the best place to be. But if you have to be on the lake, the best place to be is in a boat. If you ask anyone that's been in a boat, if you'd rather be, if there's a storm, would you rather be in the boat or five feet to the left of the boat without a life jacket? Everyone's going to want to be in the boat. That is the best place to be. But suddenly, when Jesus shows up on the scene, the boat is no longer the best option. See, I don't know what it looked like when Jesus was walking on the water. I don't know if he was walking up and down the waves as they, as they went in front of him. I don't know if, he, if they were just kind of dodging him and getting out of his way so he had a, he had a straight, even path to get to, the, to where the boat was. I don't know. But here's what I do know. That boat was completely under the control of the same storm that Jesus was completely in control of. That boat was at the mercy of the same storm and the same waves that Jesus was calmly walking on top of. The boat was at the mercy of that storm. The the storm had the mastery over the boat, but Jesus had the mastery over the storm. And I think for that moment in time, Peter recognized that and said, I've got to get out of this boat and get to where Jesus is. No matter how ridiculous it sounds to get to where he is right now, he, I've got to be where he is. His fear drove him away from what he knew. Peter knew boats. He was a professional fisherman. But it drove him towards Jesus' side instead. I think he suddenly got afraid of depending on this boat and wanted to be at the side of his Savior. He got out of the boat that was being buffeted by the waves and went to the one who was calmly walking on top of them. But like I said before, fear makes us cling to what we know. It makes us cling to what we understand and what we're familiar with. And so before Peter gets all the way to Jesus, he has a little bit of a crisis. And the scripture says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And I'm kind of a kid at heart. And when when I read that part of the story, all I can think about is Looney Tunes. Um, all I can think about is Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. Because, you know, in cartoon physics, when, yeah, see, when, when, when he's chasing the Roadrunner and he runs off a cliff, takes a wrong turn, runs off a cliff, just runs through midair, right? And he, he doesn't fall until he looks around and realizes what he's doing is impossible. And then that moment, that's when he falls. Peter does the exact same thing. Um, Peter's walking on the water, and I don't know if it's like a sudden big uh, gust of wind hit him or something like that. He looked around and said, this can't be happening, and it stopped happening immediately. As soon as he realized what he was doing was impossible, he sank. But immediately, again, I mean, I probably could preach on a whole other sermon about the three immediately's of Jesus in this story, but immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught Peter and said, you of little faith... Why did you doubt? Which seems kind of rude, because Peter was walking on water, and the only person who did that besides Peter was Jesus. It takes a lot of faith to get out of a boat in a storm and walk on water. But Jesus is right. For that moment, Peter lost his faith in Jesus. He lost his faith in the one that was sustaining him. But in the midst of that loss of faith, Jesus still shows Peter that his faith in him was not misplaced. 
and rescues him. Peter was, was relying on, on Jesus to save him from the storm, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He pulls him up and sets him on the water again, and they walk back to the boat together. See, when, when the storm comes, and the storm will, if it hasn't, and some of you may say, my life has been a storm for the past 30 years, and that may be. When the storm comes, our fear drives us often in the opposite direction of Jesus, towards what we're certain of, towards what makes sense, towards what makes us feel more safe. But the problem is, Jesus is the only thing that we can cling to and guarantees our safety. The other things might work. The other things might help for a little bit. But the things that we, we put our hope in, if they're not Jesus, they will not sustain us. They will not save us. They will not fix us. We can put Band-Aids on our broken legs all we want. But our fear and our uncertainty should drive us to cling to Christ instead. Because trusting in Jesus, clinging to Jesus, means sometimes you have to let go of the other things you're holding on to. Perfectly good things. Perfectly understandable things that we cling to when we're afraid. Sometimes we have to empty our hands of those things, no matter how good they are, and cling to Jesus instead. Because he's the only guarantee we have. He is the only thing worth putting our hope in. Jesus asked Peter to do something that was impossible. That's the problem with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus routinely asks us to do things that are impossible. In fact, everything about Jesus is impossible. If you think about it, everything, if you, if you look at this from a common sense perspective, everything about Jesus is impossible. That he was born of a virgin. That he walked on water that he made paralyzed people walk, that he raised people from the dead, that he took five loaves and two fish and fed thousands of people. That's impossible. I used to be a youth pastor. I've been in youth gatherings with 30 and 40 teenagers and someone brings in food to feed them and they bring in three pizzas. What happens next is not a miracle. Okay? That's how you get on the news. But Jesus does these miraculous, impossible things his death on the cross, the blood that he shed, atoned for our sin, my sin, your sin, when we didn't even exist yet. His death and resurrection defeated the power of sin and death for all time so we might have an eternal relationship with him and he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us today. That's impossible. But I know that it's true because I've experienced his love, his grace, his forgiveness, his reconciliation. I am not who I was because of the transformative power of his grace in my life. I know that it's true. We are here because we take, we take on faith those general impossibilities. That's why we're here today. But when Jesus becomes, comes to us with specific impossibilities for our lives, then we have a problem. Then come the excuses. Then come the explanations and the fear when we explain to God how the world really works. We can't be Christ-like in our schools. Do you, God doesn't understand what that will do to my relationships, what that will do to our status. It doesn't work that way. We can't be Christ-like in our place of work. 
Honesty, integrity, kindness, those things don't work in this world. You don't get ahead that way. I've got a career to think of. We can't love the person that God puts into our mind to love because they, God doesn't understand how much we've been hurt by that person, how much pain and misery they've caused in our lives. That's not how life works. We can't give money to anyone but ourselves because God doesn't, clearly does not understand the financial strain that we've been under. We don't have time to give any, any of our time to God because we're already sacrificing our families for the advancement of our careers. It doesn't make sense. And so we run the wrong way. When Jesus is calling us out of the boat, and here's what I think might be a dirty secret in the church, not just for each of us individually, but as a church as a whole, is that at the back of our minds and the back of all these fears is the fear like Peter had when he sank, that Jesus isn't enough. That the God who calls us is not enough to be the same God that can sustain us. That God hasn't really thought all this through. And if we follow him blindly, we're going to be in bad shape because he's not enough to get us where he says he's going to get us. Fourteen years ago, I moved to Kansas City with my family and we, I went to seminary and while I was in seminary, I spent that time uh, working in the global mission department of our Nazarene headquarters. And one day, we had a chapel, and the director of our, our missions department met with us and was telling us these stories of the way God was moving in the Horn of Africa. The Horn of Africa is on the east side of the continent, and it's countries like Sudan and Somalia, a place of unbelievable poverty and unbelievable persecution and violence. But the church, the more it was, per- was persecuted, the faster it grew. It was growing so fast they couldn't keep track of it. He told us a story about how uh, a, a church planting team went into a village in Sudan to plant a church, and they found a building that had just been built, and it said Church of the Nazarene on it. And they asked the people who, who built this. They said, well, we did. They said, did a team come and help you? He's like, no, no, we, we just heard about it. We've heard about the Church of the Nazarene. We've heard about this man named Jesus. And we built this in hope that you would come and tell us more. And I remember in that chapel, one of the people asked, uh, asked the director, he, they were like, well, why doesn't that happen here? Why doesn't that happen for us? And he was kind of a, a sarcastic kind of guy, and he, he facetiously said, he's, he's like, oh, those poor people. They don't know what God can't do. Like, they, don't, they, don't, they, have, they don't realize what's impossible for him yet. See, but we're much more sophisticated. We understand the way the world works. We understand what God's not capable of. And we, so we don't ask too much of him. Because we don't want to be disappointed by him. So we give lip service to following him and then make our plans for his eventual failure. See, what I think happens is that we get so wrapped up in our fear, in our own inadequacies, in our own self-consciousness, that we begin to put those things on God instead. And our fears become his. Our inadequacies become his inadequacies. What we can't do, he can't do. What we don't understand, he doesn't understand. And God gets smaller and smaller and less and less powerful until the church shrivels up and dies and no one even notices it to bury it because it's just the way we're used to it. I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you trust God, Anything you want to happen is going to happen. 
I'm not saying if you stay by the side of Jesus and you do what he wants you to do, all of your dreams will come true and everything that you pray for is going to happen and anything you can think of, he's going to get done because you demanded of him. That's not how this works. That's not what I'm saying. Our demand, fear is what makes demands. Trusting is about, is about accepting what God wants from us and staying by his side no matter what. God's obedience to us is not the demand that we make in exchange for our trust in him. Most of you, uh, most of you know that, that my dad has, has pancreatic cancer. And his healing is not the price that God must pay for my trust in him. His healing is not my reward for following God and doing what God says. That is not the demand I'm going to make of God, and that is not the demand my, my dad is making. That's not how this works. We work for him. But when God calls us into the impossibility, we've got to go. When we first heard about the, the cancer diagnosis and the, just the awful news, I went down to Illinois to be with my parents to take them to the Mayo Clinic to get a, another opinion and to, to get a plan of action. And my, uh, my dad, we left on a Sunday. And my dad shouldn't have gone to church that day, but he, he wanted to be there. He wanted to say goodbye to his church. Um, and he was obviously he was way too sick to preach that day, and we sat in the back. But at the close of the service, they called him to the front so they could gather on him and pray. He's been their pastor for 30 years. And they wanted to gather on him and pray for him. And, and uh, he was so sick. You know, we had to take him all the way to Minnesota in the back of an SUV on an air mattress. But he stood in front of him, and, and they gave him a microphone. And, and, and I don't remember all that he said. He didn't say much. But what I do remember him saying is he stood up in front of him. He said, he said, when you pray for me, pray that in the same way that, I've, that I, was, I lived well in the good times, that I would suffer well now so that people might know, might know Christ through me. I think that's what trust is. There was no promises like God's going to heal me because I'm a good man. That's not what he said. He said that God has brought me here and I want to live for him here. That's what trust is to me. And I don't know I don't know what you heard today. I don't know what stood out to you today. I don't know how God is speaking to you today. I don't know what God's calling you to do today, calling you to do or to be. But my only prayer for you is to not let fear have the final answer. My prayer is for you to set aside your fear, set aside what you think you know, what you think you understand, and how you think the way the world works. And allow God to do something impossible and extraordinary in your life, in the life of this church, whatever that may be. Heavenly Father, you are stronger. God, help us not to cower in fear of the storm that you, that bows down to you. God, help us to live our faith boldly. Help us to trust in you that the God that calls us is the God that sustains us and the God that strengthens us. We love you this morning. We ask that you would go with us from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.